going to continue a journey in the Gospel of Mark that we have been on for many, many weeks. You know, we've been in this journey for 23 weeks. We have been taking a journey through Mark. And these last few weeks, we've been, doing a, we've been putting a Christmas spin on it, trying to do a Christmas edition on the Gospel of Mark. And this week, we're going to step into a story that actually is part of a string of miracles. And I want you to be thinking... That, that this is part of a larger story about kingdoms. And that's, that's the direction I want us to move today. So we step into Mark chapter 8. We're step into verse 1, and we'll start from there. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. We'll pick up and go 21 verses here to get the scope of the story. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit out on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave them thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven baskets, basketfuls of, seven, uh, of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got in the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmuthia. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples, they had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, Is it because we have no bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes, do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Mm. So we, we begin in this passage, really it's in two parts, isn't it? We got a miracle and then we got, we got something going on in this discussion in a boat. So if we take the first part first, we notice a miracle emerging right off the bat. But it is the third in a string of miracles. So if we remember where we were just the last couple weeks, we would remember the other two miracles that set the stage for this one on smaller scale, but still in this string of three miracles, the one we just read being that third right on the end. Now, let's take a look, just, just quickly review where we were in chapter 7. So we were in chapter 7, verse 24 through 30. Remember Jesus removes an evil spirit from the daughter of the Phoenician woman. Now there... Jesus has a woman come to him, and there she begs that Jesus would remove an evil spirit from his daughter. This woman, remember, 
is not Jewish. It's not like she can claim to be part of the family. And yet here she comes to Jesus asking for this miracle. And then there at the last part of chapter 7, 31 through, 31 through 37 of chapter 7, we saw that there was a deaf and mute man healed. And he's in this region of the Decapolis, which would have had Jews, but largely a Gentile, a non-Jewish region. And here you have this man coming, begging Jesus, his friends bringing him, saying, please heal me. And in both of those miracles, these two, these two miracles that are going to set up this third one in this string of three, we see two themes that I think are emerging in both of those miracles. I see desperate situations, both desperate, desperate situations, and I see people on the margins. In both of those miracles, that's what we have in play. We have a woman, not only that's on the, mar- on the margins of society, we have a woman who's desperate. And without Jesus showing up, she's probably not going to have any healing take place in her home. And here a man, we don't know how long he had been deaf and mute, but still in a desperate situation, and definitely a man on the margins. Those with disabilities in the ancient world would have been on the outside of the inner circle of any region, city, or town. And so both miracles, we see the theme moving. Then, in that string of three, with both desperate situations, people on the margins, we find miracles in both, we come right on the heels now of a miracle on a larger scale, but again, again, we have those same themes emerging. So here in chapter 8, verse 1 through 10, we have the feeding of the 4,000. And so those are your three miracles that Mark is setting up for us. It's going to be important to see the setup for where we go next, but here we have, here we have three miracles, the last being on a larger scale, we have a desperate situation, and we have people on the margins. And in this case, they literally are on the margin. They are in the borderland. They're out in the wilderness. And I want us to understand how desperate these people were. Now, you remember, as Jesus even referred to in the latter part of the passage, that he'd already done a feeding of many people. He'd already fed 5,000. Now, is this just a repeat miracle? Like, is this just Jesus, like, bragging? Is this just him showing off, you know? I don't think so. In the first miracle, the people were with him less than a day. And there was a town or village near where they could have gone and bought food. In this miracle, that was not the case. Just check out how Mark sets the scene. It's important for us to see this, and I'm pulling from the New Testament for everyone. It it, it grabs at a more literal uh, translation so that we can get the sense of what Mark is trying to highlight for us, the reader. Check out verse 1 and 4 here. A large crowd gathered with nothing to eat. Not little to eat, nothing to eat. Verse 4, where could you get food for all this lot out here in the wilderness? Answered his disciples. Some translations say remote place. We need to understand they are out in the wilderness. There's no, there's no convenience store around. There's no gas station to buy food or drink. This is in the wilderness. And here we find a desperate situation in people on the margins. And in this miracle, like those previous two, but now on a larger scale, we see the abundance and the compassion of the kingdom of God answering the plea of the people. That is, the resources of the kingdom now come through for the people that are desperate and on the margins. So, abundance and compassion, it's overflowing, and now 4,000 people are fed. And there is a desperate piece to this miracle that we didn't see when he fed 5,000 back in Mark chapter 6. 
Now that sounds good. We get to the end of verse 10 and we're like, wow, another group of people were fed. What abundance, what compassion. Look at the kingdom of God working. And then right there, as we move into the next part of this passage, we see that conflict, though, is right on the horizon. I mean, it's right there. Conflict is right there, ready to hit the scene. And that is going to hit, that conflict is going to come right up against the abundance and the compassion of the kingdom of God. Let me say it this way. The abundance and the compassion of the kingdom of God is clashing with the worldly kingdoms in Palestine. And Mark wants us, the readers, to have walked and experienced the abundance and the compassion of the kingdom of God right along the way. And then at verse 11, we will now come into conflict with these worldly kingdoms in Palestine. And we come up against, in this verse particularly, the kingdom of the Pharisees. Check out how Mark says it, verse 11. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, they came and started to argue with him. This was not a peaceful conversation. They started to argue with him, testing him. They demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. So right here on the heels of a major miracle that shows abundance, compassion, overflow of the kingdom, here we come into verse 11 and we see the clash emerging. This is important for us in the Gospel of Mark because this clash is a theme we see over and over again. And once again, the Pharisees want, us, want Jesus to fit into their box. You see, feeding a bunch of people didn't match what the Pharisees thought of as the true king of Israel. The true, of Israel, the true king of Israel for the Pharisees is going to be a guy who comes in, kicks out the Roman oppression, the, the, this Roman enemy, and then he's going to set up a really big law book, and he's going to make sure everyone is ritually pure, and they're going to do everything right. And that will establish God's kingdom on earth, and everyone will follow their rules. That's what the Pharisees have a vision for. And yet here Jesus is feeding 5,000 people, or 4,000 people who are both desperate and on the margins. That doesn't, look, that doesn't match their box for the king of Israel. And so the clash emerges. And for Jesus, this clash will not go away. And for us, as we walk through the Gospel of Mark, we know that this fight will take us all the way to the cross. And here it is intensifying. Mark is making sure, just slightly as he writes his account, to just turn the knob on the heater on the stove. The water is continuing to boil in the story. And when we get to verse 15, for the first time Jesus tells his disciples something he has not yet told them. And he says it in a way that makes it very clear that the water is getting to boiling point. Check out, just want to remind us what he said, and I'm going to use a different translation to grab the sense of what is happening in the original language. Here's what he says, verse 15. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them. So it's a warning. It's not just a teaching. This is a warning. Watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. So watch out and beware grabs the sense here. It's like there is an enemy at your door. Watch out. There is a dog with rabies about to bite you. Beware. This is what Jesus is doing for his disciples. 
Now, it's very interesting that he uses this language of yeast. Now, in some translations, it is leaven. These are both obviously the same thing. So what in the world is Jesus trying to communicate here? It's as if there's a different kind of leaven that the Pharisees and then Herod, remember Herod is the king at this point, the political overseer of the region, then also working in tandem with Rome. And so you have both religious leaders and political leaders, Jesus says, that they have bad leaven. They have bad yeast somehow. And what in the world is he getting at? Now, I could spend the next five minutes trying to explain that to us, or I could read you three sentences from a scholar who had an editor who put it all very, uh, very concisely. I'm going to go with the three sentences. You cool? All right. Here's what one scholar says. Jesus speaks of leaven not to warn the disciples about the wrong sort of bread, but to put them on their guard against the wrong sort of kingdom vision. The confrontation between his kingdom mission and its rivals is coming up fast. He is anxious that the disciples should understand what's happening. This difference between the kingdom vision of the Pharisees and Herod of that lot and that of Jesus in the kingdom of God is going to continue to become more and more clear to the point where the clash will lead to a crucifixion on a Roman cross. That's where this story will lead. That's where the glory of Jesus will be seen. But here in this part of the story, we see the warning now being clearer than it's ever been. Now, this is a theme we've been watching play out in the Gospel of Mark. Now, I had a sense that it had been playing out, like from Mark chapter 1, but I thought, why don't I go back through those 23 sermons that we have, that we have uh, enjoyed immensely together, and let's see if the theme has come up over and over again. It sure has. And so I just want to take four slides from four different sermons, and I want you to see the, where we have been along the way. I did not mock up these slides. I didn't, like, move them so they fit really well into this sermon. I literally cut and pasted so that you and I could see how, how, how prominent this theme, this clash of kingdoms has, has been in the gospel. And I think you'll see merging this difference between the, the kingdom of God that Jesus brings and then this kingdom of the Pharisees, of the worldly powers of Herod and Pilate, how all this is going to shape out. So let's take a look. We'll just jump in Mark chapter 1. When we were in that sermon, we noted Jesus flips the kingdom of this world upside down. There we noted that pride, manipulation, evil spirits, and disease were all up front in, that go in the gospel that Mark, this record Mark is writing. And yet, as Jesus walks in all of those, as he confronts pride, manipulation, evil spirits, and disease, what we see emerging from Jesus is lowliness, truth, deliverance, and healing. So we see right from the beginning of the gospel, we see a different kind of kingdom emerging right here on earth in the person of Jesus. Let's go to Mark chapter 2 and see what we saw there. We said there that the world invites the best and brightest, the righteous and well-off, and rules and rituals. But we noticed that Jesus was doing something different, that that kingdom was beginning to shape out differently. The invitation looked different. Jesus invites the corrupt and the ignored, the dirty and the unworthy, and he invites relationship. This is a different kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing to earth in himself. Let's go to Mark chapter, Mark chapter 4. In the end, we noted in that sermon, there are two kingdoms. 
There's the one that is prideful, and out of that pride, death is produced. And we said, as we looked at this passage in particular, what was the kingdom of God? Ah, it was full of humility, defined by those that are humble, and out of that humility, we see good fruit being produced. Two kingdoms. That's something we noted many, many weeks ago. And then in Mark chapter 6, when we were there, we noted, this, remember, was when John the Baptist was, was beheaded by Herod. And we noted that these, these are, this is a clash of kingdoms. And I said in that sermon, this is the trajectory of the story. And we noted then here this comparison. Herod and the kingdom of the world value being served, being first, luxury, being better than others, uh, being better than others, and power. John the Baptist and the kingdom of God value serving, being last. Sacrifice, humility, truth. These are two very different kingdoms. So if I took all those slides and I just took a few out of those sermons, I would summarize it this way. I would say, the kingdoms of this world think power is established and maintained with violence and brute strength. Jesus establishes his kingdom with love and humility. The Pharisees come into our story and they say, you do what we want, it needs to match and fit into our box, and we need to be able to control whatever you're doing. That's, that's the kind of power and strength we would expect in the kingdom of this world. Jesus says, in my kingdom, I'm actually just going to give away. I'm going to have overflow. In my kingdom, there will be compassion. There will be abundance. These are two different kingdoms. Now, if we take all of that, and we throw it into the Christmas story, we would see that this conflict is woven into the Christmas story right from the beginning. The Gospel of Mark does not record the birth of Jesus. So I have to go off script. There is no Christmas story in Mark. But there is in Matthew and Luke. And in particular, Matthew fills out the picture, gives us some more color on the canvas for how the story of Christmas related to the kingdoms of this world. Now, I just want to note how it all begins to play out after the birth and then the coming of the Magi. Take a look at how Matthew records the story. He says this, Matthew 2, 9 through 11, he says, After they heard, this is, this is the Magi coming from the east. After they heard the king, they went out on their way, and the star they had seen went, uh, w- when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Ah. In the ancient world, it would not be a surprise to see people bowing to a child, a child king. This is not out of nowhere. Because a king would die, and if the successor was a baby or a small child, then they still are in succession. They are still in line to be king. Therefore, the kingdom bows to the new king, even a child. But in those scenarios in the ancient world, do you know what that child always has behind them? Always has, both in concept and in reality, has with them to make sure that people would bow? They had the full weight 
of military force behind them. The very structure of the government was now behind the new king, be it a child, be an 80-year-old. Whoever sat in the seat now had the full weight of the military system behind the throne. And so if you are part of a kingdom that now has a child king, you're bowing to the child king because there is someone tied to that child king that will ensure that everyone in the kingdom acknowledges their authority because that's how order, you keep order in that kingdom. But here in Matthew, you have kings from the east coming and bowing and worshiping a child king. And that child has no military force behind it. This child has no gun, no bazooka, no military complex around it. This child has only himself and his parents beside him. And at this point, a community in the middle of nowhere behind him. And no one, would have, no one would have acknowledged his kingship. And so here you see the kingdom being acknowledged in a very different circumstance than ever was acknowledged in the ancient world. You have a child with no form of military might being worshipped as king. That should tip us off that from the beginning in the Christmas story, this kingdom, this king come to earth is different than any other king that the earth has ever seen. So what happens when an earthly king comes up against this king? Like what would happen when Herod gets wind and hears about this new king, this new king that seems to be so different? Actually, different is often a threat. Well, what happens is violence. It's the flexing of brute strength. And that is the sad part of the Christmas story is when that kingdom of God now clashes with the kingdom of this world. Death emerges right from the beginning in this story. Just take a look how Matthew records it. A sad part of the story here. 2.16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So what does the kingdom of the world do? What does a Herod do? What does the leaven of Herod do to establish his kingdom? You kill everyone that would be a threat. That's what you do. Just blow them up. Kill them. And yet here, Jesus is moving in a very different way. These two kingdoms sit right against one another in clashing. And the values of these two kingdoms are very different. Very different. And so the Christmas story would tip us off in this season that the way of Jesus is full of compassion. It's full of abundance. It's full of mercy. There's a lot of kindness. There's a lot of good cheer. But good cheer tied to that compassion and mercy. Not brute strength. Not you're going to get yours. It's not full of revenge. It's not full of bitterness. It's a different kind of kingdom. And so this Christmas we remember, we remember that the kingdom of Jesus is fundamentally different than the kingdoms of this world. Now, what in the world does that have to do with your life? Well, it brings us to a question. It brings us to a question we might ask. And that is, which kingdom are you trying to live in? 
What kingdom are you trying to live in? It's a good question for application. You will fundamentally live your life in a certain, in a certain way. And kingdom is a way of describing that way. Because a kingdom establishes certain patterns and behaviors. You know how to act in a certain way because of the rules and rituals and laws of that kingdom. Well, which kingdom are you going to try to live in? So let's bring that now down to maybe something even a little more practical. So let's ask a few more questions. Are we building worldly castles? Now, i got no problem with castles. If you want to buy me a castle, I'd be fine to take your castle. That's not the problem. It's when you think the castle is the be-all, end-all of your life. It's when you think your castle is what establishes your life. Now, your castle can be anything. It can be your reputation. It can be your bank account. It could be your boyfriend, your girlfriend. It could be your spouse. There are a lot of things that we could set up as gods in our life as our version of a castle. But is that what you're trying to do is build up castles so that you can be somebody? Now, let's take another one. Are you training to be first and better than others? You see, every time you make a decision, you're training your way in a particular kind of life. Kind of like every time you take a baseball, you know, a ground ball. You let, now, just letting you know, this is good form. So what I'm doing is very good form, okay? So if anyone's listening to this online, just know, just watch a, a professional baseball player, and you will see what I have just done. So, so, you know, when you take a grounder in baseball, you take that. Every time you do that, you reinforce good behavior. You know how I don't take grounders? I don't take grounders like this. I don't do that. Now, I saw Mark Sneed do that once, but, but I knew that wasn't right. Good thing he's not coaching anybody, right? Man, whew. I'm just going to button my jacket just for a second. All right, let's get back to it. So, so when you and I make decisions in real life, we are training in a particular way, and so we really want to think about the way your decisions are training you. Are some of the things you're doing in your decisions, are they training you to be first and better than others? So one thing that I know that I will catch myself doing is when I'm really hungry and dinner's getting prepared, I start to snack on whatever's being made, and then when it's ready, I get my food, and I sit down and I start eating. And I'll do it before everybody. Like, I'll knock the kids out of the way. Like, this gets serious. Like, and if they try to do it, no, no, you need to wait for dinner. You know, that gets a well-established double standard. Uh, but what I want you to understand is that every time I try to, like, eat first and, and even just picking but not letting the kids pick, those kind of things, as innocent as that sounds, and maybe it is, it is training me in a particular kind of way so that when I get to bigger decisions or decisions that have larger consequences, I'm already well-trained to actually try to put myself first. So I just, I'm just thinking, which kingdom am I training to live in? Begin to think about that. And don't think any decision that you are making, any habit is too small. Everything is training you into a particular kind of person. And then last one here, using our power to get ahead or put people down, even subtly. I think you know how we all do that in some form or fashion, okay? Rarely do we ever put someone down directly. It's usually indirectly. It usually has a subtle twist to it. So that's what I want you to think about. However you put people down, however I do it. Those are all things training us to make sure to establish ourselves with power, to, to, to be better. That's a form of violence. Now, let's go, let's go just, to, just one more slide on this one. Are we using our gifts and talents for good? Oh, 
Some of you have dreams for doing some really cool things in life. Some of you have a lot of gifts and talents. I would say all of you do in some form. And so you go like live into those dreams. You go pursue them. God wants you to grab for all the good things he's given you. But use them for good. Use them for good. So much of my life up to this point, uh, up, up to about seven years ago, I was using any gift that I had to try to make sure to let other people know how good I was. And it began to ruin many, many relationships along the way. But what if you could take gifts to be able to bring people together, to connect, to take all of those giftings, and you could do good with those gifts? That would be the goal. Don't ever think that your dreams or what you would like to do or your ambitions are bad. Man, live into your ambitions. But make sure you're doing good as you, as you move in those ambitions and dreams. God has actually created you individually for some purpose. This is a good thing, but use it for good. And then last here, are we serving others using our power to build them up? Ugh. All of you have learned the English language, I think. I think. I'm not going to pick on Mark. I'm just saying, I'm, I think everyone has learned the English language. Everyone listening online is like, who's this Mark guy? We might put a picture, might put a picture <laughs> on, the, on the sermon cover. <laughs> okay. So uh, this is very random today, Mark. Um, yeah, you can pay me later. Um, so um, listen, on this, on this, we've all learned the English language. We know how to use words. Can you imagine what happens when we use our words for good? When we encourage somebody, you know, just a, a kind word can do a lot, can do a lot for someone. You, you know, God's given you a body. You, know, you can give a hug sometimes. Now, don't make that uncomfortable, okay? But you get the point. Just recently, I, I met someone. I had heard a lot about this person. And I saw him. Um, he was on the side of the road doing something. Like, it, it was part of his profession, okay? It wasn't, it wasn't just some random guy on the road. And, and I had an opportunity finally to meet this guy. I'd been hearing about him. And I got out of my car, stopped the car, got out, and just gave him a hug. Gave him a hug. Now, he thought maybe it was a bit awkward. I reflected later, and I wondered if that was awkward. But I did it. I committed. I gave him a hug. Weeks later, I am talking to someone else who knows this guy. And he said, man, this guy's been going through a really hard time. And he said, you know how much that hug meant to him? It actually has surprised him how much that meant to him. Now, I thought I was just being socially awkward. And really, maybe I was. But God used that. Now, I'm using a fun example here. But think of what you can do with your words and your body to build someone up. Use your power for good. That would be the way of abundance and compassion. That would be the way of overflow. That would be like feeding 4,000 people. All right, let's take this down to a next step, and let's throw a little Christmas twist on it. Next step, this is something you can start doing today. Spread some Christmas cheer to someone, really. No strings attached. Now, I get it. We all like talking about Christmas cheer, but really at the heart of Christmas cheer is doing some random act of kindness, doing something nice for someone. That's the spreading of Christmas cheer, right? It's making someone laugh. It's being joyful, those kind of things. Just yesterday, we were at uh, packing a lot of meals. I'm going to show you some pictures at the end of our service. And someone from our church wore these, like, reindeer antlers, right? And multiple people commented on them because they were, like, the only person in the room wearing some type of visible decoration tied to Christmas. And it brought joy to so many people. 
Can you imagine? That's spreading Christmas cheer. But do that, and don't have any strings attached. Just pick someone and spread some Christmas cheer. That might seem silly, but it will train you in the right direction. It will train you in the kingdom of God. And that's a good thing, particularly in the Christmas season. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful to you. You are the God who is near us. And so this Christmas season, we are asking for your help as we move and want to live in your kingdom. It is a kingdom you established by coming into our world as a baby. And then you move from a baby into adolescence all the way up to adulthood. And you clashed with the kingdoms of this world and you won. We want to live in that kingdom. So help us be compassionate. Help us be a people who overflow with love. We pray that we would be that kind of people. So help us. We're going to need your help. And we pray that all in the name of Jesus, who is our king. He's our friend. And together we say, amen.